Hello and welcome everyone to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on this week's episode, we're going to be going deep on historical CONCACAF World Cup qualifying to try to determine the places the U.S. men's national team least likes to play. We will also try to figure out why they do not like to play in certain locations. Uh, It can get a little bit hostile is the overall takeaway. Recording this on April 2nd, this week saw the first round of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying kick off with 30 teams split into six groups. The winner of each group will then advance to the second round of the format, there being that one group winner plays another, ideally home and away. We'll see if coronavirus allows for that. Uh, And then the winning team over the one or two legs will advance to the final round, normally called the hexagonal because you have six teams. This time round, you will have eight teams, so we're going with octagonal or maybe the octagon, the oct, whatever you think is most appropriate. The U.S., Mexico, Costa Rica, Jamaica, and Honduras are all already through to that final round due to their standings in the FIFA World Rankings, so five teams already there, three still to be determined. But those three aside, we do then already know some of who the U.S.'s opponents will be, and it is the case that the narrative is already building and spreading that CONCACAF is getting stronger, U.S. opponents will be more challenging, and U.S. fans should therefore be nervous because of the failure to qualify last time around. And it is true that opponents are going to be strong, the U.S. will need to be on their game, and there will be more unforeseen challenges than probably ever before. But it is easy for U.S. fans to let memories of that last qualification campaign cloud their recollection of what came before, when the truth is, CONCACAF World Cup qualifying has always been a challenging task for the U.S. men's national team, especially when they go on the road. It is true that the United States had qualified for every World Cup since 1990 until their failure to qualify, but the record in qualification is sometimes a little bit spotty. For every time they finish top of the group and seem to breeze through qualification, there are other times in which they finish second or third, drop some points, have some draws, don't get the results as expected. So here, in the strict order of my decision-making, are the locations where the U.S. tends to have the most trouble. Honorable mentions will go to Jamaica, Honduras, and Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, despite that loss in Cuba in 2018 qualifying, the U.S. has mostly fared pretty well when traveling to Trinidad and Tobago, with a World Cup qualifying record of three wins, one draw, and two losses. They've had a little more difficulty against Honduras, where they only have one win, two draws, and one loss. The same goes for Jamaica, where the U.S. tends to pick up points. Uh, more often than anything else, having only suffered one defeat way back in the early rounds of 2014. Qualifying tends to be that those draws happen on the road and then at home the U.S. wins, and that tends to be enough to get through. But not so much when we move to our top three most difficult places to play. We're going to start with Guatemala. The U.S. has played Guatemala 25 times since the teams first met back in 1977. The U.S. lost the first three encounters all on the road, not surprisingly, but then hit their stride and have since amassed a record of 15 wins, six draws, and only one loss. That's obviously a pretty favorable record. Again, 15 wins, six draws, only that one loss. But this is where it's worth noting that the U.S. tends to have a much stronger all-time record against CONCACAF opposition because a lot of those results, a lot of those games are played in friendlies on U.S. soil and in Gold Cup matches, which, again, are usually played at home. So it seems like the U.S. does really, really well consistently against Guatemala. We don't need to worry about them. Why are they even on this list? 
The answer is because we sometimes have to play them on the road, where the U.S. has managed just one win, meaning of their 15 total wins over Guatemala, only one was on the road. Similarly, of those six all-time draws, five came on the road in World Cup qualifying. The U.S. also lost 2-0 in the earlier rounds of 2018 World Cup qualifying before thumping Guatemala 4-0 at home. Again, results at home, less so on the road, and even less so when we get to our second most challenging opponent to play on the road, which you might have thought would be number one, but is in fact number two, it's Mexico at the Azteca. Mexico is undoubtedly the USA's biggest and most long-term rival. The two teams have met a whopping 72 times since their initial encounter way back in 1934. Mexico does hold the advantage all time with 38 wins, 14 draws, and 20 losses. The U.S., won that initial encounter in 1934 and would then have to wait until 1980 before getting another victory. However, since that win in the early 1980s, the U.S. has had a much better time in those matches against Mexico with 19 wins, 11 draws, and 15 losses, which is good. However, when the Americans travel to Mexico, things take a turn. The U.S. has only managed one win all-time in Mexico, courtesy of a 1-0 win in a friendly in August of 2012, when second-half substitute Breck Shea, yes, that Breck Shea, found the feet of second-half substitute Terrence Boyd, who laid it off for eventual goal scorer Michael Orozco, who was also a second-half sub. Other than that result, it is zero other wins on the road in Mexico. World Cup qualifying tells a similar tale. The U.S. has managed managed three draws at Estadio Azteca, the National Stadium of Mexico, the first one being a nil-nil draw in 1998 qualifying, the second a nil-nil draw in 2014 qualifying, and the third a one-to-one draw last time we tried to qualify for the World Cup. That was after losing the home leg 2-1. That's an all-time World Cup qualifying record of zero wins, three draws, and three losses, which is actually still better than I expected, especially when you realize that that's with a negative three goal difference. Again, three losses, three draws, it means we lost every game by only one goal, which seems like an achievement when it comes to Mexico on the road. It's not great, but it's not nearly as poor as the USA's record against the final team we're going to be discussing, Costa Rica. At time of recording, the United States and Costa Rica have played each other 39 times since their first encounter in August of 1975. The U.S. holds a slight advantage overall. These numbers are hilarious to me. With a record of 17 wins, 16 losses, and 6 draws. Of those 17 wins, 17 came when playing on home soil. And of those six draws, five were in the United States as well. That's right. The U.S. has zero wins, one draw, and 16 losses when playing on the road in Costa Rica. World Cup qualifying again reflects this pretty accurately. Going back to qualifying for the 1990 World Cup, the U.S. has played in Costa Rica eight different times, including twice in 2002, twice in 1990. They've lost every single game. They've managed six goals for and 22 against, which doing the math is an average of 0.75 goals scored per game and 2.75 goals against per game. They basically lose games and they lose them by multiple goals. We'll take a look at some of the reasons why playing on the road in Costa Rica might be such a difficult endeavor in a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsor. 
This episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by Stereo, or more specifically, the Stereo app, which has thousands of live social conversations with a wide range of genres for every interest, including news, comedy, sports, and more. You choose whether to be a co-host, participate as a guest, or simply listen in on exclusive conversations. Uh, We have been doing a Stereo show a week, and we will continue to do so, especially uh, because it's really good for doing live reaction shows. If we wanted to do a quick take, hot takes, sort of on a game that happens, but we don't want to record the whole podcast and put it out in the feed. We can just get to stereo, do the live show, have some back and forth. People can join us. People can ask questions live and we can play them and then answer them. And then we can call it a day. We just end the broadcast and that's it. If you want to check out what we've been up to, you can download the stereo app. When you get all set up, you can follow me, Rockwell TSS. And I believe all of our past stereo shows are there for you to check out. Usually it's me with Ryan Bailey or Joe Lowry. Uh, There was one time with Alexis Guerrero, so we might try to vary up the guest list a little bit in the future. But you can find all those shows about any number of topics, be they Soccer 101 topics, uh, live reaction shows to games, or even just uh, Joe and I did one this week about just U.S. national team questions, anything you might have. So to check out those and many, many, many other possibilities to listen to and enjoy, download the Stereo app and follow us at Stereo.com slash RockwellTSS. A link to that is in today's show notes. One more time, that's Stereo.com slash RockwellTSS. We are very much enjoying our time on Stereo. It makes interacting with listeners all the more easy and all the more fun. We hope you will check it out. Thank you very much to Stereo for sponsoring today's episode. Now, Let's get back to figuring out why playing in Costa Rica can be so challenging. First, there's the kind of obvious broader point to be made about U.S. geopolitical relations when it comes to Central America. You could look at the Monroe Doctrine, the Roosevelt Corollary, or the CIA's unofficial policy of cocaine is fine as long as it's fighting communism. Lots of intervention in Central and South America. There have been many, many books and many, many scholarly articles written on this topic. They can go into much greater detail and much more precise detail than I, but obviously the influence of the United States is often controversial. Foreign policy cannot be overstated when it comes to the perception of the U.S. national team and the United States in these soccer countries. The USMNT tends to be, fairly or unfairly, perceived as a representation of that American government. Cue a whole bunch of booing and a whole bunch of object throwing on occasion. But again, that's for Central and South America, broadly speaking. Let's now take a look specifically at Costa Rica and what the factors might be that make the United States playing there and getting a result there so challenging and thus far impossible. We've all heard the horror stories about playing at the Azteca in Mexico City. The elevation is brutal. The pollution is bad. So the air quality makes it even more challenging to catch your breath. The fans are about as hostile as possible and won't hesitate to share both their beverages and their bodily fluids with opposition players. And yet the U.S. has still managed to get at least a few points in qualifying at Mexico's home fortress, whereas Costa Rica remains a zone of intimidation where points refuse to materialize. In terms of possible explanations, let's start with a big one. Estadio Ricardo Saprisa Aima, a.k.a. the Saprisa Stadium. For much of the USA's experience playing in Costa Rica, away games were played at the Saprisa Stadium, home of Deportiva Saprisa. The stadium seats just over 22,000, and from 2004 until 2014, the playing surface there was field turf. Uh, playing on field turf in midday heat is never an exciting proposition, but former U.S. coach Bruce Arena would argue that the alternative was even worse. Quote, 
A very bad field is worse than a good turf field. The old field was just horrible. They'd get these late afternoon rains and it would turn into a pit, and the heat is also a factor. End quote. The turf was replaced in 2015, but the rainy season issues remain. The design of the stadium doesn't help either. During an interview with the CONCACAF website, Costa Rica captain Brian Ruiz, who was Clint Dempsey's teammate at Fulham at one point, said Dempsey hated the stadium because of the proximity of the stands and the artificial turf. Landon Donovan echoed that sentiment, stating, quote, Saprissa feels like the most difficult place to play. In Salvador, the fans are away, and even in Azteca, it is a ways away. You can feel it. You can hear the fans right there. It makes it tougher, end quote. The vertical design of the Saprissa Stadium makes players feel like the fans are right on top of them, and given that the distance from the far sideline to the stands themselves is only a few feet, that sentiment is pretty logical. But the intimidation factor starts even before players get to the stadium. Here's an excerpt from a great piece by Nico Cantor for Sports Illustrated in which then LA Galaxy defender, now U.S. national team coach Greg Berhalter, responded intensely, as is his style, to the notion that CONCACAF World Cup qualifying is a simple creature. Note, I think he's trying to say that European nations wouldn't be able to handle it, hence why there's a random reference to Germany thrown in. Anyway, here's the quote. Go down there and play. The Germans, first of all, they die of the heat. Second of all, the antics going on would drive them crazy. The fire alarms in the middle of the night, the radio stations blaring in front of your hotel, the 12 o'clock kickoff in the middle of July, that stuff, they wouldn't deal with that. The sandwiches, the rocks, the batteries, end quote. Those last three things were not what the U.S. was served for meals. It might have been, but in this case not. But rather the things they had to dodge on the way into the stadium and then sometimes during the games as well. But even in the locker rooms, normally a tranquil source of comfort and focus prior to games, there was neither comfort nor tranquility. Here's Bruce Arena from that same Nico Cantor piece. Quote, the visiting locker rooms, it was as if they'd started preparing them a year in advance. They would be filthy. I leave it to your imagination. What can accumulate in that sort of environment? The smell was terrible, end quote. I mentioned previously that during the game, it felt like the fans were right on top of the players. That was very much literally the case when the players were in the locker room. Here's another one from Landon Donovan, who in an interview with Colin Cowherd described the atmosphere. Quote, the locker rooms are underground. The fans would be there four hours before the game and the stadium would be packed. Every seat would be taken four hours before the game and they would jump the entire time. And when you're in the locker room changing, everything would shake. So it felt like an earthquake for the half hour. You're trying to get ready. And when you're there, you're scared out of your mind. There's nothing in sports that emulates that, end quote. There's a brief clip of that locker room experience in the always excellent whole new ball game Gatorade ad from many years ago. Uh, there's also a longer footage clip of that one with the drop ceiling panels looking like they're continually about to come crashing down. You can see Santino Quaranta sort of look up at the ceiling in a very, I don't know what I've gotten myself into, but I know I don't like it sort of expression. Alexi Lalas echoed this sentiment. He said that the locker rooms themselves weren't particularly pleasant, but the problem was the proximity to the fans. It felt like they were right outside the door because they were. Costa Rica moved their national team games to the National Stadium of Costa Rica in 2011, Estadio Nacional, which was explained succinctly by Jeff Marr of the Washington Post, quote, Now we get to play in the brand new Estadio Nacional, which was built by the Chinese government in exchange for Costa Rica ending diplomatic relations with Taiwan, end quote. 
Despite that move, the Americans' results in Costa Rica have not improved. The natural grass field remains rough at the best of times and reminiscent of a European field at the end of World War I at the worst. The locker rooms at Estadio Nacional might not bounce as much, but the stifling atmosphere on and off the field remains. Alexi Lalas notes that the new stadium is still a daunting place to play, but adds that it's nothing compared to playing at Saprissa. He said old Saprissa Stadium was always the problem when playing Costa Rica. When I asked why, his response was simply, it was Thunderdome. Which seems fitting, because two teams enter, and then Costa Rica leaves. And as for the officials, they do whatever they can to get out unscathed, even if that means being overly generous at times with some of their calls. There's the infamous one of, I believe, Matt Beasler getting booked after a Costa Rican player walked near him, fell over, and then claimed his foot had been stamped on. With the crowd bang and everybody angry, the referee gave Beasler a yellow. He didn't take it very, very well. From that same Washington Post minute-by-minute report that I mentioned earlier about the USA's qualifying loss in 2013, here's a line. Dempsey is mowed down at the top of the 18, but no call. Someone leaned over to Aaron Johansson on the bench and said, it's always like this. And while it is always pretty hostile, we've established that, that game was hostile in particular because it was the home leg, the return leg, of World Cup qualifying for Costa Rica after the infamous snow game when the U.S. beat Los Ticos 1-0 in a blizzard in Denver. A straight-up blizzard it definitely was. Writing at the time for Sports Illustrated, Grant Wall cataloged all the different ways that the nation of Costa Rica decided to show their displeasure about being forced to play in a winter wonderland. And yes, I say the nation of Costa Rica because the U.S team, which was normally sort of whisked through express customs, was forced to go to regular customs like most other travelers. But most other travelers are not greeted by scores of screaming Costa Rica fans, which the United States were because those fans had been tipped off about their arrival time. Costa Rica didn't provide the United States with game balls to use in practice. They had to use their own. Uh, and none of the three potential training sites that Costa Rican Soccer Federation recommended would allow the U.S. team to play there. So they had to make their own arrangements which seems to have ended up being a sort of open field where a man in a cow suit kept firing off an air horn. There's an incredible uh, video of Jurgen Klinsmann trying to do an interview as a man in a giant cow suit kind of stands near him and occasionally fires off an air horn. For the last uh, two years, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful team. It's, a, it's a, a team with very, very good individual players. If you look at uh, Brian Ruiz, you look at Saborio that we know very well, obviously, in the United States. You look at at Oviedo, you look at Borges, you look at Diaz that plays overseas, Barantes. It's a team full of talent, a lot of talent. The crowd volume for that match, which the U.S. did go on to lose 3-1, to was measured at 96.08 decibels, which is about the same volume as a motorcycle when it whips right past you. Now imagine that volume of noise for two hours during the game and four hours before. You start to understand why maybe home games in Columbus are slightly more favorable Plus, they're somewhat less likely to throw eggs at your bus while the security personnel stand around and watch, which is indeed another thing that has happened to the U.S. national team when playing in Costa Rica. All that is to say that when the U.S. kicks off World Cup qualifying later this year, there will be more scrutiny than ever before on that team. The 2018 World Cup qualifying failure will loom large. Every misstep and every goal against will no doubt be cause for alarm. But we can at least rest easy knowing that when the U.S. heads down to Costa Rica, they won't have to deal with a locker room that could double as a bouncy house and 22,000 fans screaming abuse every second of the game. Because the national stadium seats 35,000. So have fun, fellas. I'm guessing Greg Berhalter will double down on his claims that Germany would not do well in this situation. 
Hopefully, the Americans will. And on that note, we've come to the end of yet another Soccer 101 episode. Before we call it a day, a reminder to please check out the Stereo app. They have been a wonderful partner for us. They have made doing these live broadcasts every week so very easy and really fun just to tune in and listen to different people having different conversations about different things. I said different a lot there, but it's a fitting fitting way to go about describing what Stereo is because it's cool just to get to check out different conversations from people that you'll never meet, you wouldn't otherwise meet from different backgrounds, different experiences. I enjoy listening just to get a sense of different people's cultures and beliefs and approaches to life. So be sure to check out some of those and then obviously be sure to check out our weekly Soccer 101 episodes where we talk about many different topics, all of them driven by what you all ask, which again, you can do by submitting your messages in the Stereo app. Uh, one more time, download the Stereo app uh, or follow us at Stereo.com slash RockwellTSS to get all of our different shows. Thank you once again to Stereo for sponsoring this show. Thank you very much to you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and I hope I've made Costa Rica more understandable and also more intimidating all at once. I've been Taylor Rockwell. This has been Soccer 101. We'll talk to you all again next week. 